0: To Isaiah 6 and while you're turning there I will say that like Harry has said before um, it can be very much said about myself the book that I'm currently studying is my favorite but not all my lessons from here on out the rest of this quarter will start in Isaiah just this one maybe a couple more uh, but we're just going to start out in Isaiah chapter 6 I appreciate the reading of that scripture and preparing our minds for this lesson I did want to, before getting into my lesson, very quickly, um, I told Harry I'd do this. He preached second last week, so I wasn't able to speak after he preached that lesson. I wanted to give it a hearty amen, especially the application on modesty at the end. I think that he did an excellent job of setting that up. I think that the scriptures are very clear along those lines. And I'd encourage you to listen to that again and definitely make application of that. Also... Randy, that's not the first time I've ever heard that joke before. There are people here that can testify to that. Um, but I think that while well, it's all good and fun and it's it was a good joke, uh, and, and I've heard it said to other people as well, so I'm not alone, you uh, got to realize you always run the risk of having a Eutychus situation on your hands after saying something like that. Someone falling asleep and falling out the window, so uh, buckle up. I kid, of course, Um, I appreciate his leading of those songs, Uh, did an excellent job, always does, and prepare our minds for the holy things of God. You know, guilt is a universal reality because sin is a universal reality. All of sin falls short of the glory of God, and because of that, what you have is a universal need, at least, maybe not desire, certainly should be, but a universal need for pardon, and for those who have come face to face with the threat of judgment and realize the way out of that wrath of God, we can uh, relate to what Paul says of himself before Christ in Romans seven twenty four. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Guilt is universal reality, so the need for pardon is as well. You know... I want to consider that this morning, thinking about it in the way that Scripture reveals in regard to how serious sin is. And while it's a spiritual thing, we don't see how serious it is with our eyes. And so like Harry was mentioning, we got to walk by faith and just trust God about how serious things are. Because as we, as we continue through our lives and, and we fall short, or maybe you haven't even obeyed the gospel and you're in sin now, there are things you can start doing and you can put that away in the filing cabinet of your mind and forget about it and and think that everything is good and well because sin is not some black goop that is on your clothes or on your skin. and You can't really feel it. But if it's there, the effects are destructive. They are eternal if they're not dealt with. And what it does in part is it brings forth the presence of guilt, which is also a problem. And what we always need to do is realize why it's such a problem, the effects that it has. But when we think about that, know there's a way out, but take the way out that God has provided. You see, sin severs us from fellowship with God. So it doesn't matter what you do after that point with the sin on your soul. God is not pleased with what you're trying to offer him. We'll elaborate on that in a moment. The way to be back with God in His good graces and to be offering things to Him that He receives and that actually count for something, that means something, and laying up those spiritual treasures, you've got to receive pardon. This alone makes you fit for the service of God. But that pardon, like sin, cannot be seen. It cannot be felt. It cannot be taken out of a bag and shown to someone. But there is evidence that can prove to us that we have received it, or that will prove to us that we have not yet received it. Our pardon must be based in evidence. And what we see throughout history, even to today in the Gospel Dispensation, is people trying to make others feel safe, offering them a pseudo-pardon, a fake pardon. And it feels real to others, but it's not real. And when the pardon is not based in evidence, that is, you cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that, yes, I was in sin, and now that sin is sent as far away as the East is from the West, and it's not to my account anymore. If you can't prove it to yourself and to others, then it is meaningless. And when you get that pseudo-pardon that is not based in evidence, it's fabricated, it only compounds the problem, misinformation, it leads to misunderstanding, and that will just fester the sin and lead to more misconduct. When sin is not properly addressed, then sin remains and more sin comes along with it. But when you've actually received pardon and you see the evidence, I know that I'm right with God, what that does is it produces a boldness, it produces a power that you didn't know before, the source being the gospel of Christ, your faith based in evidence, and then you can go on and do great things for the Lord. But the pardon has to be real. I think Isaiah 6 is a case study of that. I appreciate the Scripture reading again. Where Isaiah is in the spirit of the Lord, he he has this vision, he sees the throne of God, he sees his majesty, he sees his holiness. The seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, he's completely holy. This is said in stark contrast to what we read in chapter 5 about the woes pronounced against Judah and their sinfulness as a vineyard of God who was expected to bear good grapes and has worn wild grapes to a great degree. And you think about a man named Isaiah and how he's a prophet of God and you wonder why he's trembling before the throne of God. Because it doesn't matter the amount of sin, it matters whether you have any sin whatsoever. So Isaiah, in comparison to Judah, he may be a light, but not in comparison to the Holy God. So he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king... Uh, of glory, the the king, the Lord of hosts. And you skip ahead to verse 8, and now he's hearing the word of the Lord. He hasn't spoken up to this point, the seraphim have. Isaiah's not fit to hear the Lord's word. Then the Lord speaks to him, and he says, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah, he volunteers himself, Here am I, send me. What happened? He went from woe to here am I, send me. It says the seraphim flew to me, verse 6. Having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. He cannot do what he did in verse 8, and carry on his mission that follows through the end of the chapter, without the pardon. And this was a pardon without any doubt whatsoever. But I want us to understand what the evidence was. It was in divine revelation. The seraphim, taking this coal from the altar, said, God is is speaking through him. This is coming from the throne of God. Your iniquity is taken away. And so because God has revealed to him his cleansing, now Isaiah, not in arrogance, not in pride, but in humble submission to the grace of God and receiving His gift of forgiveness, can boldly say, Here am I, send me. And not only that, but He can go and perform a mission that is as difficult as we read. He's going to be talking to people whose ears are heavy, their eyes are shut, their heart is dull, they see with their eyes and they hear with their ears, and they don't understand or return that they should be healed. And he's going to do this until it's completely hardened. Though there's a light at the end of the tunnel, this remnant, this tenth, will be preserved. How, how does anyone have the boldness to do that? They know, one, they're right with God. They will not suffer the wrath the wicked will suffer. And they know, two, I have the word of God. And that makes someone bulletproof. But when you've got pardon that can't be proven, no wonder there are those in the Lord's kingdom that shrink at the threat of error and sin and don't confront it with the kind of faith of Abraham or of David or of Isaiah. Pardon is immensely important in the grand scheme of things. If we're to do anything for the Lord worthwhile, if we're going to be used by Him, we've got to be pure. We've got to be clean. And you know, God's people recognize that and and we're rightly concerned with giving confidence to each other to our youth and to those who are aged, to to everyone, that even though you have sinned, even though you are imperfect, God can use you. But we've got to go about this the right way. It can only be done by dealing with the crippling and paralyzing problem of sin. If the sin is not actually dealt with and we just paint over it, we sweep it under the rug, we make each other feel as though things are okay, but the sin has really gone unaddressed, more and more problems come. We've got to have proof of our pardon, and then God can use us in amazing ways. There in Isaiah, I think we saw three points. Some have called it the woe, woe is me, the low of verse 7 in another translation, and the go, I will go, here am I, send me. But consider it with me this morning, if you will, as the deterrent of sin and shame of the release or the redemption of the pardon of sin, and then you have the devotion, the boldness to serve God. We've got to realize what God has prescribed for us to submit to. I want us to understand first what the deterrent is. It is sin and then the shame which comes with that sin as well. And understand first and foremost that sin always separates us from God. In Isaiah 59, in verses 1 through 2, Isaiah makes that point. The Lord's hand isn't shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. I want to tell you that's true of any sin and any amount of sin. Sin always separates us from God. But what we have is those not just in the denominations, but even among brethren we are starting to act as if there are some times, some circumstances, some sins, some situations where, where it doesn't separate us from God. That, that we don't even have to know about it. That that sin won't separate us from God. But that begs the question, what is the sin that doesn't separate us from God? You describe the situation for me where a sin does not separate me from a God that is described like He is in Isaiah chapter 6. You think Isaiah was an immoral man? But he said, woe is me, for I am undone. What, what sin doesn't separate us from God? Who's above the separation that is driven between God and a man by sin? Who's above that? In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, Peter says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. That means complete separation someone says we can't do that not without the lord with god all things are possible jesus said after the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he did not want to sell all he had and give to the poor the pardon is with god and so if we go to god for that pardon and if we appeal to his word for the strength and transformation we can be holy as he is holy if we can't why did peter say that peter must be a false prophet we know that's not true He said it himself, that he is moved by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come up with these things. God is revealing through him. If sin doesn't separate us from God, or if there is a sin that doesn't separate us from God, where is it? What is it? What's the situation? In 1 John 1 and verse 5, we read an important thing about God. John declares the message that he received by being with the Christ and being inspired by the Spirit that he would send. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light. And I want to tell you that it's important that he doesn't stop with the positive description of God, but that he impresses us with what that means in the negative. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Sin is sin. It's darkness. And it doesn't matter if it's a sin of ignorance, of weakness, if it's a doctrinal error versus an error of immorality, or if it's an error of immorality. If it's in weakness or rebellion, sin is darkness. And it says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so it would behoove us to go on and read verse 6 with that description in mind. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, the point is very clear. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness at all, we lie and don't practice the truth. Because God has no darkness. If there is a sin or a situation, what have you, where there's sin present and it does not separate us from the holy God, I want to see it. But I'm confident it's not there. The scripture is very clear. So what I want us to understand is, as I mentioned before, you can't see sin. It's not something visible. It's not something that is physical But if it's there, it has extremely damaging effects to the extent that if you are here this morning and you are in sin, the sin has not been pardoned, you have not dropped to your knees and prayed to God for that forgiveness as a child of God, or you haven't been immersed in the waters of baptism yet to receive the atoning blood of Christ and be added to the body of Christ, then you're not in fellowship with God. And and what the implication of that is is that we may be worshiping God and He's hearing it and He's receiving it and it is a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. It can't be said of your service. And the Scripture is laced with examples of that truth. Sin deters one from proper service to God. Now, understand by that, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're in sin, you're not going to want to come. Maybe the case. but A lot of times that's not the case. But if the sin goes unchecked and unaddressed, even if you do come, it deters you from having acceptable service to God. You may attempt the service, but it's nullified because of your sin, because God's holy. In Isaiah, the first chapter, Isaiah mentions this as he begins his prophecies concerning Judah, and he speaks about the formalism of their worship. And it's formalism in great extent because it is devoid of a life reflecting it. He said, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or in the lambs or goats. When you come before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more feudal sacrifices, incenses, an abomination to me, the new moons and sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity. And the sacred meaning. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hate, they are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. You may be doing these things. You may be my chosen people. As far as the form of your worship, it may be spotless. But your sin nullifies everything. And all it does, God is saying, is it makes me sick. How else can it be? Before a holy God, and there's sin on your soul? It can't be that way. Sin separates you. He won't hear your prayers. He won't receive your worship as an acceptable offering. You know, the same is said to a degree in Psalm 50, where he speaks about their worship, and and he makes clear that I'm not rebuking you for these offerings. You're... You're right in form. I I commanded you to give these offerings. That's not the rebuke here. Not at all. It's a good thing to be doing what the Lord commands us. But notice what he says in verse 16 of Psalm 50. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? I think that's what was going in Isaiah's mind in Isaiah 6. What right do I have to declare the word of the Lord? I'm a man of sin. And he says, when you saw a thief, you consented with him. And you have been partakers with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Here are a people described as being wicked, but they have not separated themselves from the service of worship to their God. They're separated from God in every other sense. They're not living by the word, though they're still declaring it with their mouth. They're not living righteous lives, but they're still walking into the assembly and offering up these sacrifices and offering up this worship. It's not acceptable to God. What right do you have? And I want us to be impressed with what he says in verse 21. You thought I was altogether like you. How does he say they thought he was like in this passage, or or how are they like, and therefore, how do they think he's acting in this passage? Notice back in verse 16 and 17. He says, What what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? So they're speaking the word of God, but practically, they're throwing it in the garbage. And so they're double-tongued. They're saying righteous things, They know the truth. They know what is right worship. It's not where the idols are. It's not in this form or that form. We know we're the people of God. We know what righteousness is. We know what right worship is. But in their life, they cast the words of God behind them. And God's saying, I don't say I'm holy and then tolerate sin. I don't say that I'm righteous and then let unrighteousness fester among my people. And there's too many voices in the church today that are doing that same thing. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. How holy and righteous is God, and how holy and righteous does he expect his people to be. But don't you worry about that conduct. Let's not talk about this wickedness. You thought I was altogether like you, he says. But I'm going to judge you. My word will be true in that time. Notice another example in Matthew, the fifth chapter, In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one we're very familiar with, I want to impress you with some of the thoughts that progress here. He speaks in verse 21 and 23 about being in danger of the judgment, danger of the counsel because of the hatred in your heart against your brother manifested in your speech of saying, Raka or "You, you fool, you should love your brother. Hatred or murder begins in the heart with hatred. And so it's serious, even though you haven't committed that action yet. You're in danger of judgment just by thinking these things, much less saying them. And notice what he goes on to say about worship, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. There's no question in this example that it is legitimate that your brother has something against you. Because he just spoke about the hatred that a person could have in his heart toward his brother. That's not the question. He has something against you. You are guilty of sinning against your brother. You're at the altar. You remember that. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Why? Because the sin has not just affected your relationship with your brother, but every sin is against God. And as long as this is not rectified, your worship is meaningless before Him. To the extent that you do something seemingly unheard of, you just leave it and you go and make it right with your brother. Sin's serious. You can't expect to just come and worship God and sin is still tainting your soul, but everything's going to be okay. He's going to accept it. He knows I'll repent and eventually... Or, or he wants my worship. He knows I'm well-meaning. That's not how it works. Look at it how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 2, and verses 20 and 21. Noting, noticing first in verses 25 and 26, you see the severity of this situation when he's speaking ultimately about eternal things in this kind of language. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest when your adversary uh, delivers you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. He's speaking about hell. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there too you. have paid the last penny, and the point is you won't be able to. That's what's at stake. But notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 20. Keep in mind the context is about people who are members of the church, like the two false teachers that are pointed out in verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have strayed concerning the truth. They were once right with God, but they've gone away from that truth. It's not that they stopped being a child of God, as someone will point out, like that means anything. Well, we never stopped being God's child. He's still our father. Yeah, but you can be a disobedient child of God and subject to his wrath. They're still technically of this great house in verse 20. But notice what he warns Timothy about and he encourages him to do. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. But those other people, verse 26, they're under the snare of the devil, having been taken captain by him to do his will. Don't deceive yourself. Sin prevents you, no matter what you're doing, how you're trying to mask it, sin prevents you from doing anything that is acceptable to God. He will not hear it. You're not in fellowship with Him. That's what's at stake. Sin always separates us from our God. And so when sin is unaddressed, then you have a great deterrent to an individual from ever doing something that is going to be pleasing to to God, But sometimes this is what happens. An individual is in sin, and they understand they're in sin. There's something wrong. And then what Satan tries to do furthermore is keep them in that sin by the overwhelming presence of their sorrow. And so it may be someone's desiring to serve God, but they're in sin and they know that they don't have fellowship with God. So someone may think that they're at worship and all things are good, but they have that sin they're aware of. And while someone else thinks you're offering acceptable worship to God, unbeknownst to them, they couldn't be further away from the Lord, even though they're in the assembly. But but they want to do what's right. But sorrow is keeping them from rectifying their wrong. You know, sorrow is a gift of God. It's that alarm system that goes off. It's that feeling we have from a defiled conscience. And the intention of it is to get away from that sin. You know... In Isaiah 6, that holiness is revealed not to deter Isaiah from ever serving God. It's not for Isaiah to run away from. It's for Isaiah to run to in hopes of forgiveness and restoration so that he's fit for that service of God. But just like the holiness of God is not meant to deter us from coming to serve him, we can't say that the grace of God is intended to give us a lax approach to the service of God, and act as though the grace of God somehow masks this sin that has not been rectified. We've got to be careful about that. We don't want ourselves to be swallowed up with too much sorrow, but sometimes we jump all the way to the other side and we say, because Satan can use that sorrow for evil instead of good, I'm going to make sure this person doesn't feel bad about their sin. But what they should do is, out of godly sorrow, repent, 2 Corinthians 7, 8-10. through And so we, we can't like talk about a balance we just need to talk about the truth the truth is where we need to be you need to realize how sin separates you from a holy god and realize that grace can take that sin away to serve but what it doesn't do is overlook the sin so you can serve while you're still in your sin unaddressed sin then will lead to a continual sorrow that will engulf us you know harry talked about doubts that arise and i want to tell you that doubts will continue to arise, and the birds will make, make that nest in, in your hair if you let them fester. And, and the way to keep that from happening is to study God's Word, as He indicated. To so look into truth. And one of the reasons for that is because that's when you can find certainty and confidence of your pardon. And so you can let go of that sorrow, just like Paul let go of the sorrow of persecuting the church. He, he didn't let it engulf him. He let it pass in that regard. He always remembered it in humility. But he allowed God's grace to do what it was intended to do so that he could then serve God without relenting. And God knew his honesty of heart and his love for truth would lead him to the seeking of that pardon, would lead him to the confidence of that pardon as it's evidenced in the gospel, and then he would do great things in the kingdom of God. And so Satan can use that sorrow if we're not careful and manipulate it to where we're destroyed. So yes, we've got to comfort each other. We've got to make sure we're not swallowed up with too much sorrow. We've got to make sure that people know God's forgiveness is real, and He still has use for you. But brethren, we cannot compromise the truth of the gospel to make each other feel good. Second Corinthians 2, in verses 5-11, through 11, then you have a case where an individual should have been swallowed up with sorrow, but then he repented and the Lord forgave him. And Paul makes a warning about what that sorrow can be used for if you don't reciprocate your love to him. In verse 7, On the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And that's when he says in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I completely realize that sorrow can lead to someone's damnation if it's not addressed properly but addressed properly it must be. We cannot mask the pain. We cannot mask the problem. We've got to really deal with the sin, and only then the sorrow can go away. Remember Peter? How distraught he was when he denied the Lord, and the Lord made sure he knew he still had a use for him. That wasn't fake. It was based in evidence. The Lord has the ability to forgive, and they would go preach the gospel that they had themselves obeyed, Receiving the remission of their sins. But then you've got Judas, and he was deceived by Satan into thinking that forgiveness isn't an option. The Lord has no use for me. And so he didn't even seek release. But the point is, we need to know that the release is there. We need to know that the pardon is offered, but seek it according to God's will. And only then do we have a right to be confident about serving God. Sin is a problem that cannot be overlooked. On any level, to any degree, with any person, it deters us from serving God properly. But thank God that He has offered deliverance. He's offered pardon. And if He didn't offer pardon, then brethren, we have no right to be here. We have no right to be before Him. But He does. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 4, it tells us that He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Likewise, in 2 Peter 3, in verse 9, it says that he's not flat concerning his promise, but he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants people to be saved. But that cannot be something we use as a sort of an out for addressing sin. I know sin is a problem. I will agree with the holiness of God. I will agree that sin separates one from God. I will agree that sin is a great and huge problem, but... God's love and desire for my salvation is even bigger. And so don't fret about that sin. That's not how it works. You take that truth and then you realize how it develops practically. How God revealed to us. Yes, He wants all men to be saved. That doesn't mean all men will be saved. He makes the first action. He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If if I wasn't... Uh, knowledgeable beyond what I am, I, I would think with the language that some have used in the church is that just because God wanted everyone to be saved means that everyone will be saved. Because that's used as an excuse of avoiding sin. That's not what it means, and we know that's not what it means. John 3.16 is not universalism. It has conditions. Whoever believes, in Romans 5 and verses 6-8, it talks about how he took the first act. And when we were still sinners, when we were enemies of God, He sent His Son to die. But pardon must be understood. God is offering it, but we've got to understand its nature. You see, in Isaiah 55 and verse 7, it tells us that pardon is an action of God. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he that is the Lord will have mercy on him and to our God. For he that is the Lord, God, will abundantly pardon Some make it seem as if pardon has to do with us. I believe God so much that He wants me to be saved, that even though I haven't changed, that I'm forgiven. That's not how it works. God forgives. It's something we receive and we see in the Scriptures, evidenced, and therefore can have confidence, but it's something that God does. And brethren, God doesn't do something that is against His nature. He will pardon according to what He has revealed. It's an action of God, and notice that it takes place in His mind. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34, speaking of this new covenant, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Pardon is when God does not take that sin to account anymore. He doesn't impute it to you. You've earned it but He sends it away. And it's not that God is forgetful that He actually doesn't ever remember what you actually did. It means that you will not be judged for that sin. You may sin again, and He can forget about that one, but God has to pardon, and pardon is something that takes place in His mind. It affects us, it benefits us, but it's something that belongs to Him. And so God offers pardon, but not just that. He offers a confidence of pardon. How do we know God's mind? How do we know then that we've been forgiven? God can still give us confidence of that. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John writes this whole epistle for the purpose of them knowing that you have eternal life. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are right with God, but that confidence also comes with a responsibility according to 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, and it's with the presentation of evidence. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I have hope because I've received pardon, and I'm confident in that. And what that means by nature is that I can prove it. If I'm confident, I should be able to prove it. That's the kind of confidence that God offers. But remember Pardon is something He does, and it takes place in His mind. So, pardon can only be something that we have confidence in when the mind of God shows us through revelation that we have received. Isn't that simple? I can't know unless God tells me that He has forgiven me, and I can't know that He has forgiven me unless I know His mind, and His mind is revealed in His will. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, What man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. We know his mind because he's revealed it to us. And brethren, that includes pardon. But what is happening is that more and more are trying to convince Others that they have nothing to worry about, that God has forgiven them, because after all, God is grace, God is love, He wants everyone to be saved, so you shouldn't worry about your sin. He wants you to go to heaven. But you can't know that He's actually pardoned you unless He has revealed it to you. And so what you have is a Jeremiah 6 14 situation. They have also healed the herd of my people slightly saying, peace, peace when there is no peace. You know what that implies? That they have actually received some kind of assurance. It's fake, but they feel healed. They were hurt and sorrow, and what this false prophet did is he made them feel better. He said, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Now, what has actually been accomplished except a heart is even further lost than it was before? How dangerous is it to think that you're safe When a train is rolling down the tracks right at you, you've got to actually find deliverance. And that's found in the mind of God. We see it when God tells us what to do, and then we do it. That's the confidence. That's the evidence. That's the verification. In Romans 8 and verse 16, Paul put it this way. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You notice there, with our spirit. The Spirit reveals the Word of God, and it doesn't bear witness to our spirit. That's what a lot seem to believe, that I know I'm saved because I feel it. And that's the Spirit bearing witness to my spirit that I'm saved. It says it bears witness with my spirit. And so the Spirit reveals something for us to do, and when my spirit submits to it, those two are witnesses of the fact that I'm a child of God. Very simple. In Mark 16, in verse 16 then, Jesus said they would preach the gospel revealed by the Spirit that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. It both shows the command and it shows the revelation of God and it serves as an example of this very formula. The Spirit says he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but I have only believed. And so there's this witness, but I do not bear witness with that witness. I've not done what the will of God says. I have not believed and therefore I will not be saved. When the word of God speaks, we submit to the word of God, we can know we're right with God. First 1 John 3 and verse 24, this is how John puts it by inspiration. He who keeps his commandments abides in him. He's in fellowship with him and he in him. I'm right with God. And by this we know that he abides in us. I know I'm right with God. By the Spirit whom he has given us. But notice the parallel. The Spirit whom he has given us is parallel to the commandments which he has given us. And when I keep his commandments, I know the Spirit dwells in me. I know I'm right with God. There's your confidence. But it comes with the truth. This is what he meant in first John 5 13, when he says, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. Jesus put it this way in John 8 and verse 31. When he said to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is the truth which verifies whether you are set free. They say, we're not captive to anybody. And they kind of lied to themselves, because they were captive at some point in their history. But his point is not that you've got chains on your wrist right now, that you're tied up to this weighted ball. He's saying that you are slaves of sin. And the only way you can know that you are set free is by abiding in my powerful life giving word. But here's the problem, verse thirty seven. I know you are Abraham's descendants, he says, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So you may deceive yourself going on from this point, but make no mistake about it, because you have not received my word, John twelve forty eight, it will judge you in the end. It has no place in your life. We need confidence. God offers confidence. This is how He does. In 2 Thessalonians 2, and verse 13, we see this formula again. Where Paul writes to the Thessalonians saying, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for sanctification, salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, by, whether by word or our epistle. Now, what's the kind of confidence that that affords us? Notice his language in verse 16. Impressive, beautiful language that all of us want to be true about us. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and word. Don't we want that confidence? everlasting consolation, good hope by grace. But how do we get to that point? This hope is in this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the verse 14. And it has what it seems to be the initial confidence of becoming a child of God, that salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth, and then the continuation in that, verse 15, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. You know you have that hope when you obey the gospel and you're forgiven of your sins in baptism, sanctification of the Spirit and belief in truth, and then you continue to hold fast that teaching, and you can know you have hope. You can have eternal confidence. Nothing can take it away from you. But only the Word of God can be that determining factor. You cannot have confidence without the Word of God telling you you have a reason to be confident. So don't listen to the lying voices. Don't listen to the flowery speech. Don't listen to those who try to give you a good feeling, but they have no Scripture to back it up. We listen to the truth. And the result is incredible. We're afforded a boldness that we could never have dreamt of, Because we know we're right with God and we're on his side. But when our forgiveness is not substantiated in evidence, what happens is, maybe not immediately, but at least over time, eventually, that person who walks away from a lying message with confidence, doubt, and fear will seep in. I think we know that's true about the denominations. That they, they, they have confidence. It's, it's legitimate. I'm not saying that they're insincere or that the feelings aren't real, that they are right with God, but I want to tell you there's a host of people in the denominational realm who are doubting and fearing the judgment because they know their pastor, their preacher, their creed book is not giving solid answers that are in line with the Scripture. And it's no different among our brethren. If we try to make each other feel good, but we don't have the substance to back it up, and it's real. We're just setting ourselves up for failure. And it doesn't lead to boldness of service. It leads to cowardice, to compromise in individuals and churches as a whole. When the confidence isn't based in evidence. But when we have that confidence, when we have that evidence of forgiveness, we will serve like we never have before. Notice Isaiah. Isaiah. He went from woe is me to here am I, send me, and not just on some weak little easy mission, but you are going to be preaching to a rebellious and obstinate people. David in Psalm 51 and verse 12, Ask the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Or as Harry pointed out with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I believe and am persuaded he is able to keep what I have committed to him till that day. And we wonder why Paul in chapter 4 nearing his execution can say with confidence, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and the crown of righteousness is laid up for me. It's because the confidence came from his submission to the word. He had been holding it fast. He had been protecting it. He beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the grace of God knows by his will that he's right with him. And so when the sword comes to his neck, he is safe. God will keep what he has committed to him. What the Lord has given us is boldness to approach him. And Hebrews 10, after finishing the majority of his arguments concerning how Christ is better, how you should not be turning back to this old, obsolete, inferior system But in boldness of faith, draw nearer, he gives them the reason why. It's not because they are righteous in themselves. As Paul mentioned, it's not my righteousness. It's that which is offered by faith in Christ in Philippians 3. He gives them the reason for their boldness and what that actually leads them to do. In verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, why? By the blood of Jesus. Because his blood has taken away your sins, you can be bold. Also, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Just like the old covenant was inaugurated with the blood of bulls and goats, you had Christ's inner flesh shed His blood, inaugurate this new way which actually atones for sins, where you actually have a proximity of service to God, and because of that new and living way, you have boldness. He's your high priest over the house of God. You can come at any second of any day to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy, to find help in time of need. And it's all because, verse 22, you have your heart uh, sprinkled from an evil conscience and your body's washed with pure uh, pure water. Obviously, a reference to baptism. You can connect that with chapter 9 and in verse 14, that your conscience is cleansed from dead works. And notice that. You're cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. Because you know you've been cleansed, that blood is efficacious, now you can serve God with boldness. And look at the context. He says you can draw near. Can say that about the Israelites. In chapter 12, he'll contrast Mount Zion with Mount Sinai. It was a terror to approach that mountain. And anyone who touched it died. But you can draw near. You can hold fast your confession. Why? Because you have that confidence in it. You can defend the truth. You can expose error. You can lead others to Christ by your bold stand for the truth. Even though there's the threat of persecution, you don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. You know, we shrink in fear now. Think about back then with Christians. They were expected to come to the assembly even though their houses could be plundered, they could be killed on the way, what have you. Their lives were at stake, but they went because they knew that Christ offered that forgiveness and they had it. They were right with Him. This is the true way. It's not with sin though, verse 26. We sin willfully. We refuse all of it. We trample the Son of God underfoot. We count that blood of the covenant a common thing. All the things that have granted us boldness, if we continue in sin, we spit in the face of God and we refuse any boldness that He has to offer. It is the evidentiary forgiveness and pardon. The verifiable truth of God applied to our lives whereby we can go in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, what have you? We can boldly stand for the truth. If we want that kind of a church, if we if we want to be the church of prophecy that we're reading about in Isaiah, the 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 people of God who no longer put their trust in Him who who struck them, but in the mighty God, the the congregation of God's people that really does His bidding, no matter what the cost. It doesn't come from this flimsy, anecdotal, hypothetical religion. It comes from faith, which comes by hearing of the Word of God. We should request nothing less or nothing more. We certainly should expect only the truth. What we want to do for you this morning is to offer you an invitation. It is very clear that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And it's not us speaking. It's the Lord speaking. And so... You can't have confidence in a faith-only doctrine. You can't have confidence in a spirit miraculously changing your heart doctrine. You can only have confidence in what the Word of God says. If you haven't done that, you need to do it before it's everlastingly too late. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you as well come forward while we stand and sing.